Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. My name is Luke LaDuke. The joke's on me. Um, I, my parents had nine months, like every other parents, to come up with something knowing that my last name was already going to be LaDuke. And uh, yeah, that's what they came up with. So um, I bore the pain of it through middle school, but uh, no, um, I am uh, delighted to be with you this morning. I am pastor at Wheatland Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, right on the west end of the city there. Um, and I've been there for 14 years, as Daryl said, and for the last seven years I've been the senior pastor. And uh, we uh, bring greetings from a sister church there in Lancaster County and also uh, bring uh, to you a word of gratitude for your pastor. Uh, Vince has been a great gift to our presbytery and uh, we are grateful for the work that he does not only here as your pastor but in our presbytery in so many ways uh, that he is involved there. So. Uh, Good morning and uh, welcome uh, from our church. We bring greetings and thank you for your ministry here in uh, York and uh, for the ways in which you all are gracious with your pastor. Uh, our text this morning does come from Matthew chapter 5. It is verses 13 through 16. They're printed there, I believe, in the order of service for us to see. Um, and this morning, just before I read the text, uh, this came, this sermon is part of a series that we were, were actually we're still working through Matthew now, but uh, this is part of a series uh, that we are working through out of the Gospel of Matthew at Wheatland. And uh, I just want to remind you where these verses come from, because obviously you haven't walked through the sermon series like we did at Wheatland. But um, these verses that you're looking at this morning come immediately following the Beatitudes, that litany of verses that say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that whole list of Beatitudes, which are, just to set a reminder for us this morning, the way in which we as followers of Jesus are to be in the world, they are what it looks like on the ground for disciples of Jesus to actually follow Jesus in the world. And so that's uh, where we've been. That's what comes just before these verses. And then these are the verses uh, that we'll contemplate together this morning. I'll read them, and then we'll look at them together. Hear these words from Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we quiet our hearts and open ourselves to the searchlight of your word, we ask that you would draw us into a deeper and more faithful life of following your Son, our Lord Jesus, 
who has given himself for us and is giving us to each other and the world. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a period in my formative years when my mother quit using nearly all salt in preparing our family meals. Now, there's good reason my father was struggling with high blood pressure, and the doctor had insisted that he cut back on his salt consumption. Maybe some of you all have been there. So my mom began using a substitute called Mrs. Dash. Have you heard of this woman? I still have a grudge against her, actually. Not not my mother. I love my mother. But I still bear a grudge against this aptly named Mrs. Dash, who dashed, actually, so many of my hopes around my formative years at the dinner table in those days. And she was meant to be a substitute for salt. And to be fair, there is no such thing. No one can be a substitute for salt. You know how that works. There is no world in which that's possible. Um, You see, salt is, as a favorite author of mine once said, Father Robert Capon, he calls salt the sovereign perfecter of all flavors. And, And used judiciously and wisely, salt makes things taste more like themselves at their peak of flavor. That's what salt is meant to do. Have you ever prepared a steak by covering it in kosher salt and then throwing it in the refrigerator for a while, maybe a half hour, maybe an hour, but then right before you put it on the grill, you bring it out and you brush all that salt off and then you throw it on the grill. You see, salt not only flavors but it actually transforms the composition of that meat in a glorious way. What salt does in that application is it draws out the excess moisture that is in that cut of meat, and it leaves the meat's own natural flavors to dominate. An hour or so for a piece of cheap steak in the presence of the true sovereign salt And that steak becomes something it could never be on its own. And that's just one example. You put a few flakes of good sea salt on a piece of strong, dark chocolate, and it's chocolate transformed, isn't it? You've gone from glory to glory, as the Gospels say. But it's not so for Mrs. Dash, if you know her at all. Mrs. Dash's insecurities in the presence of the one true sovereign make Mrs. Dash overcompensate. And she overcompensates with that overweening, lemony, garlicky flavor. My apologies to any of you who love Mrs. Dash. But in my humble opinion, she's ham-fisted. She knows nothing of nuance or subtlety. She does not glorify the dish that she's meant to glorify, but instead, in my opinion, she draws attention to herself. She demands that everything she touches taste like her. And so, dash, Mrs. Dash, I say. All right, so other than mentioning salt, what does that rambling invective against Mrs. Dash have anything to do with the text that I just read for us this morning. Well, here's the point. Often when we arrive at these verses, 
These verses that say you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, there is a tendency for us to hear you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Or perhaps you've heard messages on these passage where we have heard the passage that read this way, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Neither of those are wrong, per se, but both of those emphases can often lead to a similar failure that I tried to describe for us with Mrs. Dash as a substitute for salt, where she takes over and the story becomes about her. But salt is for the enhancement of the dish itself into which it's been sprinkled. Salt makes the savory more savory. It makes the sweet sweeter. And this is why I think that the little story with Mrs. Dash actually may be a helpful way for us into our contemplation of the words of Jesus here. Now, I know there are more ways that we could go at the passage in front of us this morning, but I want to start here. This is just the beginning of what one could say about this passage. See, these words, immediately following the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, are given to followers of Jesus to help them grasp right from the very start, to have firmly fixed in our hearts and in our minds as followers of Jesus, right from the beginning, who our discipleship or who our following Jesus is is actually for. And the first thing I want us to notice is that salt and light are first and foremost what disciples of Jesus are for each other and for the world. When Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and light of the world, this is actually not an invitation for a disciple of Jesus to a life of preoccupation with themselves. Sometimes discipleship can be made actually to feel that way. Like following Jesus and sanctification are about getting yourself sorted so you can be the best version of yourself that's possible. I want to begin our thoughts about these words of Jesus here inviting us to think a bit differently than perhaps we've been conditioned to think about this passage. Perhaps our focus when we've heard these words of Jesus has been overly individualistic. Sometimes the questions we've been primed to take away from those verses that I've just read for you have almost been wholly focused on ourselves. Sort of like playing Where's Waldo, uh, where you're always looking for yourself in the story here. Sometimes the questions we go away asking about this text are something like this. How salty or distinctive is my life? Or how bright is my light? These are not unimportant questions. These are helpful questions to ask, but I'm not convinced that this should be our starting point, nor should this actually be the sum of our thinking about these words that Jesus is giving here. See, when we start with ourselves, 
We often find the words of Jesus in this text. If, if we start with ourselves, we find the words of Jesus here narrowed down to discussions that become primarily about morality and ethics. Now look, Jesus has lots to say about morality and ethics. He's not ambivalent about your morality, and he's not ambivalent about your ethics. In fact, this entire sermon from Jesus in in Matthew chapters 5, verses 7, the whole sermon is straight talk to Jesus' followers about anger and lust and sex and greed and anxiety and pride and, and relationships. The whole sermon is about that. But the first seven words of Jesus here in verse 13 and the first seven words of Jesus here in verse 14 may actually be doing more than we have noticed. You'll see in the printed text in your order of service there that in verse 13 it says salt is for the earth and in verse 14 light is for the world. I want to pause here and I want to point out that earth and world are not only two different English words, they're actually two different Greek words. Each of these words would have landed very differently for Jesus' first hearers. We tend to make no distinction between earth and world. We kind of read these as saying the same thing and doing the same thing. We treat them as synonymous, but Earth, in verse 13, would not have meant for Jesus' hearers, planet Earth, a little blue globe, like we often use it. It it almost certainly, the word Earth in verse 13, would have almost certainly been understood as land, a clear reference for Jews who were listening to Jesus' sermon as promised land, Jerusalem, temple. And and their presence as salt for preserving all of those promises about the land and Jerusalem and the temple. All of their, their, they would have heard this word earth as them continuing to hope for and work for all, all the promises that God had made to their father Abraham through being faithful Jews by being faithful to the covenant God made with them. That is what the first hearers would have heard in this word, earth, or land. World, in verse 14, would have been understood as the entire world. The root word of the Greek there in that verse 14 is cosmos. That's a word that we've brought over into English and you're familiar with. And and this word here, as light for the world is a clear reference to the Jews who are listening to their presence as a light for all of the nations of the Gentiles. In fact, Matthew has already mentioned this. If you were uh, flipping back to chapter 4, Matthew's already mentioned this idea in where he quotes from Isaiah's chapters 9 and 42 and applies those chapters in Isaiah to Jesus who is come as a light for the Gentiles. I'm saying all this to say the difference between earth and world is actually 
really important for us to notice. And I want to at least suggest that these are the two horizons that followers of Jesus, all of those who will hear his words and follow him, are meant to give themselves toward each other and the world. These are the two horizons that we are following Jesus for. See, God's creation, God's love, God's election and predestination and adoption of Israel as a nation for himself, God's covenant with Israel was never just for Israel. It was for Israel for the whole world. And in fact, salt and light are both images from deep within God's covenant promises to Israel. If we were to go back to Leviticus and spend some time walking through there, we would discover that salt was offered with nearly every single offering in the sacrificial system. This sacrificial system that was put into place uh, as Israel is being brought out of Egypt and as they become rightly related to God again through their life of ongoing sacrificial worship, salt was used in nearly every single sacrifice. And as God's covenant people, Israel's faithfulness was meant to be this bright light to the nations of what it looked like for humans to be in right relationship with God and his world. In the tabernacle, what do we find? We find a lamp that is constantly lit, this lampstand. And it's positioned in the tabernacle, Leviticus tells us, so that it casts light directly upon the table of the bread of presence, which is the sign, the bread, the bread of God's presence is the sign of all of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. See, remember that the promise to Abraham was so that through Abraham and his offspring, the blessing of God's steadfast love would flow to all the nations of the world. Isaiah makes this point to Israel over and over and over in his prophetic ministry to them. And actually, Isaiah puts salt and light together in one verse to help us grasp this analogy of salt and light and what Jesus is doing with it as he speaks to new Israel, as he speaks to the new people of God who are beginning to follow him as their Messiah. Listen to this verse from Isaiah chapter 49. It's Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Lord says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant, speaking to Israel, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of of the earth. Jesus here in Matthew 5 and 13 through 16 has taken nearly all of Isaiah chapter 49, of which that verse is a bit of a summary, 
And he has brilliantly summed up all of Isaiah 49 by saying that his followers are salt and light. And here's what he's saying. As salt, they are preserving each other. That's the language from Isaiah. They are preserving each other and their sacred calling and identity as Israel to be who they were meant to be in order to light the darkness of the world. And to shine upon the good news of salvation in Messiah Jesus. This one who is the bread come down from heaven for all of the nations in darkness and bondage to sin. Now, I know that there are more things that could be drawn from these verses about salt and light and what each does. But I think starting here with this helps us to grasp the big picture. We are salt and light. We are the church for, on behalf of, the world. And friends, that has to be our starting point as followers of King Jesus. And if we grasp that we are the church for the world, not simply for ourselves... Your worship this morning isn't merely for you. It's actually on behalf of the world. And if we grasp that, then there's one other thing that we must recognize. And that is this. We have to see the context into which these words that Jesus is telling us we are salt and light come. See, following Jesus as salt and light for the world is set in the context of Jesus' words to us regarding suffering and persecution that immediately precede verses 13 through 16. If you have your Bible, I invite you to look at them with me, but I'll read them to you. Here are these words. These are the immediate preceding verses, 10 to 12. The end of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is so important to remember. Because often When we do something for someone else, when we do something on behalf of someone else, we do so with our own pretty clear expectations for how they might or should respond to what we've done. How many relationships have been blown up by unspoken and therefore unmet expectations in that relationship? Each of us have relationships littered with the debris from those sorts of explosions. And what we need to know is that verses 10 through 12 above clue us in to how our good works, that verse 16 says we live out for the sake of each other and our world, verses 10 through 12 clue us into how these good works will at some point inevitably be received. Your good works... The Beatitudes 
will at some point likely be spoken of as evil. And you may experience hatred and perhaps even worse. This, I believe, is pretty important to know as a follower of Jesus. If we have the idea that the Beatitudes, our lives of cultivated humility, open lament over places of evil in our world, meekness, mercy, peacemaking, all of those Beatitudes, if we have the idea that those things are going to endear us to a world hostile to Jesus and his kingdom of grace and peace, we are setting ourselves up for debilitating disillusionment as followers of Jesus. Even within the Christian community, your work as salt and light will be liable to criticism and pushback by those who don't yet grasp the all-encompassing claims of Jesus as king for his followers. Verses 10 through 12, and that blessing for persecution for righteousness sake as the context for our presence to each other and the world as salt and light are a rich gift to us in the sacrifices that we are called to make for each other in the world. As disciples of Jesus, when our humility and vulnerability and our meekness, and our lament, and our mercy, and all of the other Beatitudes, when those are pointedly laughed at, or falsely charged as unloving, or dismissed as unsuitable for life in the real world. Bro, that's not how the world works. Even when that criticism comes from within our own ranks, do you know what followers of Jesus do not do? They don't take their ball and go home. Instead, we lean into the pain to experience God's presence to us as we live the life of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, on behalf of each other and our world, even when it's completely misunderstood and maligned. And verse 12 goes a step further to prescribe for us our manner and our bearing when evil is returned to us for our good and sacrificial work. It's rejoicing and gladness. That is the way in which we live in this sacrificial way for each other in the world. Why? Why are we rejoicing? Why is there gladness? Because in those moments of being maligned and spoken falsely of, perhaps even persecuted. We rejoice and are glad because we are being drawn into the company of and solidarity with the prophets, Jesus says. They they persecuted the prophets before you. We are rejoicing and, and glad because we are being drawn into the very life and experience of our Lord Jesus. We have been given this compelling vision of the world as it truly is under the reign of Jesus. And in powerful love and sacrifice, like Jesus, we are giving ourselves to proclaim life and healing to a world blind and desperate and dying. 
and when our role as salt and light for each other and our world is set in the context of blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, then we are met by the blessing and presence of Jesus for us in all of those hard places that will be a part of our life as salt and light in a world and oftentimes a church that has very little imagination that it desperately needs salt and light and not a fake substitute. One last thing. All of this talk of salt and light for each other and the world, following Jesus and giving our life for the world, if it's ever more than just talk from a pulpit, if we're really actually doing it with each other and the world outside, however haltingly, If we're really doing it, the temptation will be to feel really superior and prideful and condescending and frustrated toward those who just don't get it. But do you see how that itself is self-sabotage? If that's how we're primarily oriented toward the world or toward our own churches, how will we ever even approach our work with salt and light, with credibility and authenticity, if we indulge those places of temptation, the places of frustration, condescension, pride, superiority, if we are primarily indulging those places, if we're not consistently calling them out in our own hearts and confessing them and coming back to Jesus, this one who has given us this work, we will then, in a funny and ironic and actually sad way, be turning our work as salt and light into something distorted and distasteful, an overweening obsession with ourselves. That brings us right back to where we started, I think, with that invective against Mrs. Dash. But the reality is, we are, all of us together, we are, so often far more like Mrs. Dash, a substitute, than we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. When we make the role we were graciously given on behalf of each other and the world more about us and less about the glory and the purpose of the one who has given us the work to do, everything we touch begins to taste like us rather than taste like God's steadfast love and goodness to his people and to his world. Verse 16 says, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think verse 16 helps us so much as we navigate our complex and messy hearts in all of this. Verse 16 doesn't say the answer to this is to sort of do everything, all of our good works, all our beatitude living, to do all of that secreted away and don't let anybody know about that. That's not what verse 16 says. 
In fact, verse 16 says, we absolutely want these good works of the Beatitudes to be seen and known and replicated in the world. But it does leave us asking the question, what do we demand from each other and the world when we have been salt and light? Friends, the good works that we do inside our church family, outside in our community, the sacrifices that we make are not merit badges for us. They are true life in God's kingdom. They are good works that invite each other and our world to come and find true flourishing right here among us and along with us by being rightly oriented toward a loving Father who is rescuing and renewing us and his world. Verse 16 is reminding us that the goal of our good works is not about us at all. The glory for all this goes to God who has given himself for us in Jesus. This one whose life and death and resurrection has opened up a whole new way of life in the world for all of humanity. The kingdom of God come on earth. May our presence as salt and light and our rejoicing and gladness, even in the face of evil words spoken of us falsely, may that work bear a bright and undeniable witness to the love and mercy of God in Jesus to each other first and then to our world. And may our good works together cause each other and our world to become more fully what we were always meant to be, children of the promise, children of God in life-giving relationship with our gracious Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Gracious Father, we do ask that in your kindness and in your goodness, you would draw us as your followers deeper into life in the kingdom, that we may see our work this morning as being salt and light for each other and for our world, and that this realization would begin to free us and free us to live in more sacrificial ways because you, God, are indeed, by the work that you have given us to do in partnership with you, animated by your spirit, you are making us and all the world new. And you are bringing the entire world in your good time to bow the knee and to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Hear our prayer. Catch us up in that drama as we live as salt and light, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.